Thank you for that beautiful song. Well, 37 years ago or thereabouts, I was sitting in a small apartment house down on Lancaster Boulevard and Trevor Avenue, just about a block from our church, and I was preparing for my very first Sunday as the pastor of Lancaster Baptist Church. Our apartment was quite small. In fact, it was so small we could not set our bedroom furniture up in our bedroom. Uh, There was no place for a washer and dryer. It was uh, quite humble indeed, no air conditioning, it was a hot summer evening. We had a little kitchen table and I sat there with my wife, Terry, and we were contemplating what could happen on the first Sunday of a church and I said, I sure hope some people come. Uh, We'd had 12 people that called us to be the pastor, but the attendance had gone down since they'd called us and And so that week I had knocked on a lot of doors, about 500 doors, inviting a lot of people to church, but you know, you never know who's going to come. You never know how many are going to come. And, but I said to Mrs. Chappell, I said, Terry, we need to probably make a little bulletin. We had a little, uh, little Mac computer. Uh, I think it might have been one of the first Mac computers ever made. Uh, I wish we would not have thrown that away. I think it's worth a lot of money now, but, uh, but we had this little Mac computer and my wife, uh, took the keyboard out, and I began to dictate to her some of the welcome article for that bulletin. And I wrote in that very first bulletin a little bit about the church. I said, I want to welcome you today to our first Sunday here at Lancaster Baptist Church. And uh, I, I spoke some things about our hopes to be a blessing to them. And then I said in that little article, I said, Lancaster Baptist Church is an independent, fundamental separated, non-charismatic Baptist church. And I wasn't saying those things to be pugnacious. I was saying those things because sometimes you need to identify where you fit in the broad scheme of things. There's kind of two ways to, to uh, uh, advertise. One is to kind of like trick people into not knowing what you really are, you know, kind of being kind of generally vague that, you know, we're, we're Christian. And the other way is just to say kind of here's where we are and And uh, to me, independent just simply means free. It means we're unaffiliated. We're not a part of a denomination where they question whether you should uh, ordain women or where the pastors drink alcohol or uh, where they support maybe the World Council of Churches and so forth. So I kind of wanted them to know we're not heading in that direction. We're an autonomous church. And and, uh, and so I put that word there. And then the word fundamental, we, we don't use that word as much lately. Sometimes we use word orthodox. I might use the word fundamental with preacher brethren or with you guys, but we don't use it a lot in, in the public square because people are afraid of that word these days. But fundamental doesn't scare me. It just means we believe in the basic doctrines of the Word of God. And if you go to basketball camp, they say, we're going to teach you the fundamentals. Nobody says, oh. You know, it's, it's, a, it's still a, a good word to describe uh, that we believe the basic doctrines of the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the, the, the literal heaven and hell, and so on and so forth. So, so I wanted folks to know we're an independent church. We believe the fundamentals of the Word of God. The word separated just is a word, again, you don't hear that one as much, but uh, we just heard a song about holiness, and God, God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And 
And uh, what I was trying to emphasize there was not necessarily a harsh uh, legalistic spirit, but to say that we believe the Christian life is a holy life. I wanted moms and dads visiting our church to know that uh, we wanted uh, a, an environment that was conducive toward helping them to raise children that are different in this world. And, and every mom and dad should want their children to be separated from what's going on down at the mall, for example, or, or down, at the, down at the nightclub or whatever. So don't be afraid of that word, separated. That's a, uh, that's a Bible word as well. Come out from among them, be separate. There's a principle there of, uh, of holiness. And so I put that in there. We're an independent church, fundamental, separated. And I don't know why I put in non-charismatic. I just wanted to get that in there while I was throwing out some, some labels, you know. And I think I put that in because having been out door knocking that week and having knocked on 500 doors, at that time, there were some pretty large charismatic churches in our community. In fact, Jim Baker had just uh, recently fallen in sin, and he had joined a church, believe it or not, right here in Lancaster, and it was kind of in the paper. And, and I just wanted folks to know that we actually believe in eternal security. We don't speak in tongues, all these things, and I was kind of laying it out there. You know, this is the kind of church that we are, and we're so glad that you're here. Well, I preached my heart out to that first Sunday morning group of maybe uh, uh, 12 or 15 people, and we passed that bulletin out to everybody, and I was having the time of my life just preaching away, and I don't, I, the offering was almost $300. It was, it was an awesome day, you know? And after church, I was standing, shaking hands out on the little uh, back patio of that building, and a man came up to me, and he said, you know, I read what you put here in the bulletin, this independent, non, this non-charismatic separate, he said, you know... You will never build a church in Southern California if you're that narrow-minded. And I, I just said, well, uh, we're going to see. Uh, duly noted. But that was the philosophy, and that was the beginning of the seeker era where everyone was trying to kind of soften down and, and uh, don't talk about sin, talk about shortcomings, and, and uh, just kind of wear sandals when you preach, all this type of stuff. And, and, uh, and so he had apparently bought into some of that, and he said, you're never going to build a church if you have those particular convictions. Well, I want you to know that I am firmly convinced that if you will stay true to the Word of God, if you will be not a seeker-sensitive church, but a Savior-sensitive church, and with a strong doctrinal position and a, and a loving spirit, that you can still build a Bible-believing church in California or anywhere else in 2023. And I'm going to take a few minutes and share with you a biblical pattern for how that can really work. And we're going to look today uh, at the church at Thessalonica. But before we do, I want to contrast the church of Thessalonica with another church, and that is the church at Laodicea. Found in Revelation chapter 3, we read about the church of Laodicea. And as we hear the Lord speaking to the literal seven churches of Asia Minor, each of these churches seems to have a type, if you will, of, of a particular period of church history. And the last church, of course, is the church of Laodicea. And it's an interesting name, that name Laodicea. When you study the etymology of that word, uh, you'll find that uh, the word means the church of the people's rights. The people's rights. Laodicea. When you break that apart, it was the church of the people's rights. And I find it interesting in Revelation 3 and verse 14, the Bible says, unto the church of the Laodiceans. Unto the church of the Laodiceans. To the other churches, 
such as Ephesus, uh, the Lord said uh, to the church at Ephesus. But in this church, to this letter, it was to the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, they felt that they themselves controlled their destiny, that their rights were preeminent. They were the church of the people's rights. It was the church of the Laodiceans. It was their church. And we might say in today's vernacular, uh, they were a seeker church. They were a church that did things their way. And I want you to contrast that philosophy of this is our church, it's our rights, to what we're going to see this morning in the church at Thessalonica. And, and I want you to know that this church at Thessalonica is considered by many to have been a model church in the first century. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. It was a church that had a strong, strong testimony. It was about 100 miles from Philippi along the Ignatian Highway. Paul had only been there a few weeks, but the Holy Spirit had moved mightily uh, as uh, he began the ministry there. And we see God did some great things. And whenever I see God doing something great, I always want to ask, how did that happen? Why did God bless in that place? And I want you to jot down three dominant truths about the church at Thessalonica how could they have been so bold and so faithful to truth and yet so blessed? I want you to see, first of all, this was a church with pure motives. As Paul began his ministry there, uh, he identifies for us his philosophy of ministry, and he speaks of it in verse number three. He says, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Now, in these verses, the Apostle Paul is literally defending the integrity of those that began the ministry there at Thessalonica, particularly himself. Uh, if the enemies of Paul could awaken distrust in the messenger, they could somehow try to discredit the message, and that happened everywhere he went. And so he is establishing his own uh, motives in starting the church. And let me just say, motives matter. It is important that we are doing what we are doing to the glory of God. And I want you to notice his motives. First of all, he tells us that he was not deceitful. Uh, verse number three, our exhortation was not of deceit. There were many temples in Thessalonica that were apparently religious temples but they were places of debauchery and immorality. Uh, they were not helpful at all to the people. And, and Paul says our, our ministry was not deceitful. Much of the seeker movement of the past few decades, I believe, has been deceitful, uh, telling people, uh, come as you are. You don't have to change anything. Just be yourself. And folks, we ought to be able to say, come as you are. But if someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, everything's going to change. And, and we need to be honest about the fact that the Christian life is a holy life, that we're not to be conformed. And Paul says, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to deceive you uh, in what I said. I was truthful. Notice, secondly, there he says he was not unclean. Verse number three, our exhortation was not of deceit nor of uncleanness. This word uncleanness speaks of his moral integrity. He was a morally clean man. Let me just stop to say that 
most preachers that fall out of ministry, it's either one of two things. It's either a money problem or a morals problem. It's very important, whether you're a school teacher, a preacher, an evangelist, that you walk with integrity. And this is what Paul is saying. We walked with integrity. We were not deceitful. We were not unclean. Notice thirdly there in verse 3, he says, nor in guile. Uh, he, he wasn't trying to use trickery to bait or snare people in. He wasn't trying to, to somehow compromise in order to get people into this church. A lot of times uh, I like to read church announcements or brochures or tracts, and, and uh, oftentimes there's, there's nothing about much about the Lord or, or doctrine. There's not a lot of real uh, salt, if you will, uh, and I understand we're not trying to offend people in the church, but I believe we must be truthful that uh, we exist too, and what do we exist for? And it ought to be all about Christ, and it ought to be all about the Word of God. And Paul was a man that was, was not in guile, he was not trying to use trickery. I think about this term that you've learned, some of you in the contemporary theology class, the term of new evangelicalism which began at Fuller Seminary with a man named Harold Ockengay. And his entire concept, his proposal was somehow to bring the modernist together with the fundamentalist. This is going back now into the 50s. And he said, you know, the fundamentalists, they believe the Bible's the Word of God. They believe little creation. The modernists, they might be uh, theistic evolutionists. They might not believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture. But, you know, we're all Christians. Let's just all get together and, uh, and, and, and let's call it the new evangelicalism. And, and yet the fact of the matter is that uh, many of these movements are full of deceit because the truth is, how can two walk together except they uh, agree on the truth of the Word of God? And Lancaster Baptist Church is definitely not a new evangelical church. We're not trying to hold hands with people that don't even believe the Bible's the Word of God. We stand firmly on the fundamentals of the Word of God. We're not going to have a ministry that is full of duplicity as opposed to integrity. In fact, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, and purpose. He said, nobody had to question what I really believed. And I believe this is important, that we are unashamed of the truth of the Word of God. I remember years ago bringing a man named Curtis Hudson to this property. Dr. Hudson was a great pastor and evangelist, and he was a friend to me. And we were building our north building where the Kid City building is now, and we were walking at that time on the concrete uh, of that uh, newly, newly laid uh, foundation. And I was talking to him about going to two services and just different concepts of ministry at that time that were on my mind. And, and he went home and he wrote me a letter in which he said, uh, Dear Brother Chapel, this was just after he was diagnosed with cancer, he said, I don't know how much longer I have for this world. The doctor does not hold out much hope for me. However, life and death are in the hands of the Lord, not medical science. Then he said this, I challenge you to take your place in the long line of independent fundamental Baptists who have stood for separation and soul winning. I speak especially of ecclesiastical separation. That would be this kind of a new evangelical philosophy. He was saying, I want to challenge you with respect to taking a stand. Let your, let your position biblically be known. Never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Never be ashamed of Bible doctrine. 
And you know, when Dr. Hudson wrote me that letter from his deathbed, it resonated with me. I took it personally. And I trust that some of you are taking this message personally. I trust that you're sensing that that we don't need any more guile in ministry today. We need true and real men of God who will just be honest to say, I'm a Bible preacher, I'm a Baptist, I'm in this town to try to help you understand that all men are sinners and that without Jesus Christ there is no hope. And listen, you can be kind to every preacher in town, but you don't necessarily need to yoke up with them and act like they believe the truth when they really don't believe the truth. And Paul said, I'm not going to be a deceitful man in the ministry. And I thank God for that testimony. Notice, secondly, he was a man who was not deceitful. He was a man that was not man-centered. It wasn't going to be all about him. And if we're going to have strong Bible-believing churches in a suspicious culture, in an unbelieving culture, I believe these truths to be vital. Notice in verse 4, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Notice this next phrase, not as pleasing men. Much of the contemporary church is all about removing the saltiness, removing the vocabulary of certain doctrinal words such as sin or atonement uh, and somehow watering down the truth and somehow having the beat of the music to make them just feel uh, really good and somehow having the appearance of everything to kind of somehow model uh, the secular. And and, and there may be lessons, even the Apostle Paul quoted uh, the ancient poets when he stood to preach on Mars Hill. I get all of that, but let me tell you something. Our goal should not be to please men. Our goal should be to please Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood for the church. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. And when I walk through that door over there, I'm coming out on this platform to preach to an audience of one. And that is Jesus Christ. And Paul says says it this way, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. The Laodicean church I mentioned earlier oftentimes was a church that wanted their way. In fact, this is the church to whom Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That verse was not written to an unsaved people. It was written to a church of people who wanted their rights. They wanted to have their Burger King way. And Jesus said, hey, if you'll open the door and let me in, I'd like to come in. I mean, they were so full of themselves, they had lost the joy and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe there are many churches today cranking up the band. Boy, they got a great tambourine player. Man, it's on, they'll tell you. And, And if you believe everything they say about themselves on their social media page, you're a fool. Because many times what they're claiming to be, the the outpouring of God is nothing but another higher decibel of volume. You'll know you have the outpouring of God when those same people are living distinctive lives to the glory of God seven days a week. And Paul said it's not about pleasing men. It's not about blending in. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, he said, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. It is the business of the church to adapt Christ 
uh, uh, to men. It, it is, rather, it is not the business of the church to adapt Christ to men, but to adapt men to Christ. And we are to be conformed to him. We are to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm under grace. I can, I can live however I want. And, and I think people need more and more liberty. And by the way, I'm thankful that I'm under grace and that I have liberty in Christ. And I'm thankful that I'm not saved by my works. But Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God that appeareth to all men teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and godly in this present world and to live righteously. In other words, grace is not a license to live or to worship however I want. The grace of God teaches me to be sober and righteous and to live after God in every way. And I get tickled about people saying to me, well, I'm under grace. I can drink beer if I want to. Well, where are the people that would say, you know, I'm under grace. I'm going to go to Africa and be a missionary. You see, many times it's a perversion of grace to adapt to what you want to do in your own sinful appetite. And preachers, you're going to have to watch for that misinterpretation of what grace is really all about. Grace is our, uh, our guide to Christ's likeness. Growing in grace will not produce less holiness. It will produce more in the way of a distinct and holy life. The church is not man's. The church belongs to the Lord. So Paul said, I was not deceitful. I, I was not man-centered. I was not covetous. Notice in verse 5 he says, for neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. See, he's, he's just simply sharing his pure motives. He says, I want you to know, I wasn't there for myself. I, I, I wasn't there to play tricks with religion. I wasn't there to see what I could get with, with respect to covetousness. He was there to do what God had called him to do. So if we're going to see God bless we must see a church with pure motives. But I want you to notice, secondly, we must be a church with personal ministry. Now, this is where we sometimes miss the boat. Because we think that church is all about just declaring particular distinctives or doctrine, and that's certainly necessary. The truth is the pillar and ground of truth. This is what the church is. But notice the ministry in verse 7 now. Verse 7 says, But we were gentle among you even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Now notice here a man personal in his care. He says we were gentle. That word gentle, I believe, speaks of being easily approached. I believe an easily entreated man. And, and Paul said we were gentle. Men, you can be solid, rock-ribbed, Bible-believing preachers and still have a gentle spirit and still be easily approached. You don't have to be demeaning. You don't have to get on the internet and argue with other people. You can have, uh, as Jude says, compassion making a difference. And, and here he says we were, we were gentle and, 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 and he was patient. You're going to have to learn that sometimes uh, people require patience in the ministry. Here in Bible college, uh, we can tell you, hey, wear a tie, or we can tell you, come to class at this time. When you're working with people in ministry, they need to be allowed to grow in grace. And many times, preachers make a mistake by trying to demand very quickly of someone something that the Holy Spirit needs to give them guidance in. And here the Apostle Paul says, we were gentle with you. We were patient with you. I remember a lady that came forward after I preached in those early months. Her name was Laura. Laura. 
and I had preached about serving the Lord. She was up in her 70s. She had been saved at age 72. And she came forward and, and, uh, and, and she said, Pastor, I'm here because you preached about serving and I just want to volunteer to serve. And so I said, boy, that's wonderful, Laura. And Laura was a, was a sweet lady, but there was no way she could teach Sunday school or get involved in choir or anything like that. Yet she was a chain smoker. She, she, uh, she, was, she could sometimes curse with the best of them. The way she described my good sermons was really colorful. And she'd come up and say, but that was a great sermon. Then she'd explain it. And it was like, oh, okay, thank you. And, um, you know, she was, she, was, she was saved, but she just had a lot of areas where she was still growing. Well, I, I was 24 years old. And I said, well, Laura, I'm so glad you came forward. I said, uh, come and see me tomorrow. And we'll talk about what ministry you can get involved in. So she, she came in to see me. And, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, I, I talked to her a little bit about her testimony and and I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'm going to have you take charge of the vacuuming ministry. I said, we need someone to vacuum the church. And, and, uh, and so she got all excited about it. She took the three vacuums we owned. She took them down to Al's vacuum shop and got them all cleaned and repaired and oiled up. And she came in every, every Monday, vacuumed the whole church. Every Thursday, vacuumed the whole church. When she had to smoke, she went up back where the deacons go. It worked out perfect. <laughs> And, uh, and she was so happy serving the Lord. One day she came into my office and she had an envelope. And we were at that time buying this property that we're sitting on right now. It was $13,000 an acre. We had these little green squares. Every time we bought an acre, we put a square up there. And so she came in. She gave me this envelope. She said, Pastor, I want you to open this up. I know we're trying to buy the property. Now, one thing about pastors, you're supposed to act like you're not interested in how much people give. You're supposed to act indifferent towards that. So she gave me that envelope. I said... Oh, and I put on my preacher voice, God bless you, Laura, for this gift. This, would you take this over to the bookkeeper and let, she'll be glad to help you process the gift, you know. And I was trying to act like I didn't care. Now inside, I was dying to know what was in that envelope because we were trying to raise that money. And, and uh, so I, I kind of gave it back to her. She, she shoved it back at me. She said, I want you to open it. I said, no, you can take it over the, over the, she said, I want you to open it. I thought she was going to cuss me. I really did. I said, all right, I open it. And when I opened it, there were five brand new $100 bills in that envelope. She said, Pastor, I have been playing bingo for a long time, but I didn't start winning till I got saved. <laughs> he said, well, did you tell her about the evils of gambling? No, we were in a building program. I prayed she keep when I did it. <laughs> but you know, a lot of times... When it comes to ministry, you've got to learn to be gentle and patient. And a lot of times you can, that's one of the benefits of being in a local church Bible college. You're seeing some of the bus families. You're seeing some of the new converts. You're realizing that discipleship is a process. Salvation is the miracle of a moment. Discipleship is the process of a lifetime. And, and what we see in Paul's testimony, yes, he was solid for the truth, but, but he was gentle with people. And we must never forget the balance of that. He was personal in his care. He was personal in his commitment for them. Notice that he says in verse number seven, we were gentle even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Verse eight, we were affectionately desirous of you. And here was a man that really loved being with his people. He wanted to be a blessing to them. You've heard this saying, I'm sure. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
And I'm glad for what Brother England said. I'm glad we got a 10-year extension uh, on our accreditation. That speaks highly of the academics of this college. But I'm going to tell you something. Lots of colleges have academics, but if you don't have a heart, you don't have a ministry. And Paul was a man who had a great heart for the people of the church at Thessalonica. The Bible tells us that his heart was often stirred, Acts 17 and 16. While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. What kind of a church can maintain its fundamental stance and still be effective in this culture? It will be a church with pure motives because people can sniff out uh, motives that aren't right. People can sense when someone's in it for themselves. Secondly, it will be be a church with personal ministry. It'll be a church that really cares about people and, and, and there's hurting people every Sunday walking into this church house. People afraid of what's going on in this culture and they need to know that God loves them and that we love them as well. Then I want you to see finally... We must have a church with a powerful message. Thessalonica was led with pure motives and with pure personal ministry, but they had a powerful, life-changing message. And I want you to see it in verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. And by the way, many people today use the word gospel as an adjective uh, to describe something about Christianity. But never forget the gospel in and of itself is still the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and he said we were we were glad to preach that gospel freely unto you verse 13 notice for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when you receive the word of God which you heard of us you received it not as the word of men by the way there will be many skeptics and scoffers and atheists they'll say wow that's just man's book And I don't understand that, and it hurts me when someone rejects. But there will be many, when you stand and preach this book, they're going to know there's something different about the Word of God. And they're not going to receive it as the Word of men. They're going to sense this is the Word of God. And they're going to believe it as the Word of God. And their life is going to be changed. So let me share this thought with you first. There is power in the Word of God. They received it, verse 13. This This is a statement of the direct revelation of the Holy Spirit of God revealing His Word. Yes, through the process of inspiration. Notice what Paul the Apostle says. He says, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. Paul was saying, God revealed His Word to me. I revealed it to you. This process of revelation was something that was special, and there is power in the Word of God. There is power in the preached Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Jesus said in Matthew 4 and verse 4, He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Thank God today that we have a Bible. Thank God that in our King James Version we can stand and say, this is the authoritative Word of God. So many people today want to debate these things. They want to go around talking about this. Listen, there are too many people dying and going to hell for me to debate. And here's what what I find. Just about everybody that wants to talk about versions, they'll start their conversation like this. Oh, the King James is beautiful and it is the Word of God and, and these others are the Word of God. I don't believe these others are the Word of God, but you seem to believe this is the Word of God. I believe this is the Word of God. 
God. If you don't mind, I'm going to go on preaching the gospel from this word of God because our world is hurting and our world doesn't need another two-bit theologian discussing and arguing over some other issue. What this world needs is a man that believes this is God's word, declaring God's word. You let these guys in their mother's basement eating their Cheerios argue those issues. You go out and change your world. You go out and make a difference for Jesus Christ, believing that this is the Word of God. Paul said, you received it as it is in truth, the very Word of God. And oh, what a blessing it is to know that we have the Word of God. There's power in the preserved Word of God. Secondly, there's power in the preached Word of God. Verse 9 says, because you would not be, we would not be chargeable of any of you, we preached unto you the very gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, the gospel. Never get over the power of the gospel. I want to tell you, Christians, when a preacher preaches a whole gospel message or when he gets to the conclusion and he's bringing a gospel application, that's not the time to start closing your Bible and closing your purse and getting ready to go. That's the time to listen up a little bit closer. I enjoyed getting around Brother Sisk and Brother Lancaster this last week, men in their 90s and their 80s. And you know what made them most happy in their conversation was talking about what Jesus had done for them, talking about heaven, talking about the joy of knowing the Lord. 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, Seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Oh, the miracle of this. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And, and Jesus Christ died and rose again. He was, he was manifest in this world. He died. He rose again. This is why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and of salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think of how many school teachers never go soul winning. I think of how many school principals never go soul winning. I think of how many pastors never go. If you're going to be a school teacher or a principal or a pastor, be a soul winning school teacher, principal, or pastor. Carry gospel tracts. When the church has soul winning, you go. I remember years ago, years and years ago, I won't even say the state, a well-known pastor took a, took a large church that had a strong affiliation with the college back east and hired from that college exclusively. And the pastor came to spiritual leadership conference. He said, Brother Chapel, would you come out and would you preach for us and would you teach our staff about having a heart for souls? He said, because I've got a big school and I've got a big staff, but nobody ever seems to have any visitor in church or ever seems to go soul winning. And that was so foreign to me. I went out there, and I remember that day, he got that staff, probably 60 people in that room. Man, I was excited. I was telling soul-winning stories and talking about carrying tracks and witnessing for Jesus Christ, and I might as well have been preaching to that wall right there. They were professional. They, they had good technique. They had knowledge of their subject matter, but they had no heart for lost souls. Don't ever get beyond the gospel. Don't ever get to the place where you're so professional. You can't stop at a grocery store or you can't stop and talk to someone in your neighborhood 
about Jesus Christ and knowing him as their Savior. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, I want to challenge you today. Whatever you do, be a soul winner for Jesus Christ. Be a soul winning teacher. Be a soul winning preacher. Be a soul winner. And oh, keep the gospel right in the middle of absolutely everything you do. Years ago, I was preaching in Australia, up in Brisbane, Australia. And uh, uh, there were a number of missionaries and pastors. And one of my friends, Brother Gary Keck, he's a missionary in Papua New Guinea. He came over from Papua New Guinea with about 30 people from that area. And I've never been to Papua New Guinea, but these people were just excited and kind of loud. And some of them were huge, huge people. And they had a lot of these tattoos, like you, you might imagine, from various island cultures. And, and so it was just fun having them there. And sometimes they'd talk out and you'd tell a joke. They'd go, no, and, you know, things of this nature and, and kind of catch you off guard. And, and so uh, it was my time to preach one morning. And uh, I was preaching about marriage. And I was trying to talk to the missionaries and the pastors about uh, keeping strong marriages in the ministry. And, and I was trying to minister along those lines. And at the end, I came to the gospel. And I was talking about the fact that we're to love our wives as Jesus loved the church. And that's a sacrificial love. And I began to share the gospel. And there was one of these men there from Papua New Guinea. His name was Wai, W-A-I. Huge guy. And, and the longer I started talking about marriage and the gospel and being a good husband, he just, he just folded those huge arms of his like this, and he just stared at me. And uh, just you know, big, huge nostrils on his nose were flaring. I thought, man, he is not a happy camper. And after I finished the message, I was standing up at the front talking to people. He came and made a beeline for me. He said, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So I looked around. There was another pretty pretty big guy that had come with our group to preach by the name of David Gibbs. <laughs> and I thought, if I'm going to go into a counseling room with why, I'm taking some backup. <laughs> so I said, Brother Gibbs, <laughs> I said, why has some questions? <laughs> Let's go in the other room. So Brother Gibbs and I go in this room and, and, uh, and he began to ask me some questions. Why immediately discerned he was not saved. And I had the privilege of opening up the Bible and showing him that Jesus Christ had died for his sin. And he prayed right there in that church office and accepted Christ as his Savior. And when he got done praying, he looked up at me. He says, oh, now it's better. Now I can be a better husband for both of my wives. <laughs> like I say, I've never been to Papua New Guinea. I don't understand the whole thing. I took, I took Y out to the missionary. I said, Brother Keck, Y just got saved, and now he needs you to disciple him. <laughs> and they, they actually did take care of that problem. Apparently over there, sometimes they'll trade a daughter or something for property or groceries or whatever. I don't know how that all worked out, but he gave, he gave his uh, second wife back after he got saved. But what I'm telling you is this. There's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lives will not be changed without it. And as I see it, as I see the church at Laodicea, Jesus is saying, I'd like to come in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Can you turn down the stereo just for a moment? Uh, can, you, can you stop the jazzercise class just for a moment? Can you get off your computer arguing with those other pastors who also have a nothing ministry? Because all they do is argue. 
I'm standing here knocking and I'd like to bless your church with my presence. You'll have a choice, young men, to either pastor the Laodicean church or to pastor a Thessalonican church, which was remembered for their labor of love and their great work of faith. And the choice will be yours. And your Thessalonican church may not look exactly like the church at Thessalonica in every single way or this church in every single way, but it will be a church where there is integrity. It will be a church where the doctrine is known. It will be a church where there is clean living and moral living. It will be a church where the gospel is constantly being preached. And the Thessalonican type is the church that is desperately needed in our country today. 